I have two favorite book titles. Like when it comes to naming a book, some of them are just too confusing or too on the nose, but two of my favorite actually belong to the same author. Whoever he had, whether it was him or you know, a publishing department naming his books, Dr. Larry Hurtado was the best. The first, my favorite book title of all time is called Destroyer of the Gods. So punk rock. Destroyer of the Gods is all about Larry Hurtado as a New Testament scholar and historian looking at the explosive and sustained growth of the early church. The insanity that this little fledgling group that that started in the city of Jerusalem made its way to the power center of Rome, turning over the Roman Empire and Zeus and all of his friends and the, the political worship of the Caesars, that all of that in just a couple of centuries was turned over. Destroyer of the gods is his look at how in the world did this movement spread and sustain all over the face of the world. In many ways, what our series devoted that we're in right now, our third week in, is us looking at in Acts chapter 2 what we just read, the, the seed of the story that would be that, that destroyer of the gods story, looking at these particular postures and practices that guided the church to become the destroyer of the gods, right? As cool as that may be. Now, my second favorite book, like I said, is also by Larry Hurtado. Second great book title, and it is, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? It's a little book, and like the title is most of the cover. It's so long. And so this book is where Hurtado continues that work that he does, and he considers, like he says, why on earth did anyone become a Christian? Specifically in the first three centuries when the social, relational, financial, political, legal costs and consequences of of entering into the way of Jesus was so high. Why did anyone do that? It would be much more easy to not engage with this weird new fledgling movement that, you know, upstart from Jerusalem. So why did anyone do that? And so in this, he details and looks over all of these different accounts based off of history, reading other uh, resources from outside scripture and a deep study of the New Testament writings. And what he looks at is first and foremost, the main thing that attracted all of these people to the Christian faith was, was the message of Christianity, the apostles' teaching, like we read in Acts chapter 2. The message that, uh, one, is, is built, unlike any other religious system, built on a historical reality. The historical death and resurrection of Jesus is the basis of the Christian faith. Not mere philosophy or I think so-ism, but, but based on the, res- the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus is what this entire faith was built on. Compared to Zeus and the stories and traditions around that, it was far more captivating for people both then and today. But from that, even more than that, was so many people were always living in fear of the gods. What are we doing to try to appease them, make them not mad at me? And here you had a faith system that based on the historical resurrection of Jesus was able to tell people, God's not angry at you. And you could live your life not having to worry if you had done all that you should do to appease him. It was so attractive to the ancient world. Even then with that is also the revolutionary moral code, the ethics of the church. What we looked at last year in a series called Peculiar. They had this ethical system that turned the Roman world on its head, calling out things that everyone assumed and saying, is that really the way of what it means to be human? And so as much as the message was the first and foremost thing, it went hand in hand with what Acts chapter 2, what we just read, calls the fellowship. Larry Hurtado writes, you'll see behind me. Early Christianity's attraction 
was that it offered close relationships in which adherents formed fictive family. That is, um, a, a particularly took on a created form of, of family, not fictive as in like imaginary, but, but family of brothers and sisters. Joseph Hellerman, another scholar, urged that this offered the kind of organizing power and integrating vision that gave the early church their social identity and stability and that made their community so attractive to displaced and fragmented urbanites in antiquity. So how did the early church become the destroyer of the gods? Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? Because of this tight-knit community of bonded relationships. The language in the Greek that Luke, writing Acts, what we just read for fellowship, is this Greek word koinonia, fellowship. It's, it's a word that regularly is used outside of scriptures to talk about marriage, commitment, bonded fellowship. We're in it for the long haul, arm in arm together. We're not going anywhere. That is what overturned the gods. That is why people were becoming Christians left, right, and center, even though there were huge costs and consequences to it. And so why did Christianity, how was it able to be sustained over the generations? Because of the fellowship. And how was it able to spread through the world? Specifically, why was it so attractive to displaced and fragmented urbanites? Because of the fellowship. Now I know that last line here, displaced and fragmented urbanites, is probably in all of this the most difficult thing for us to grasp living in Los Angeles, a city of displaced and fragmented urbanites. <laughs> See, as much as we need, if we want to have a sustaining movement of God in our city, as much as we need, yes and amen, last week, the apostles' teaching and the message of Christianity, if we want to have a sustaining and spreading work of God, continuing in what God's been doing in our community over the past year, it will require us to devote ourselves to the fellowship, to devote ourselves to tight-knit relationships, bonded community. How are we doing so far? Everyone's good. So good. So here's, here's what I want to do today. In light of this is I just want to ask two big questions today. The first question is, in light of how important this is, both for a sustaining work of God in our community and for it to spread among the displaced and fragmented urbanites of our city, one, we need a portrait for what does this kind of fellowship look like? And second, we need a, a pathway. How do we actively step into that kind of fellowship? I want to look at those two things today. Now, here's the thing is sometimes before we get into where we're going, if you want to start turning to Romans 12, that's where we're going to be in just a moment. But as you do, here's, here's just the simplicity of it. Some weeks I get up here to teach and I have to go, okay, I've got like wisdom or a portrait of a vision of something from scripture. And I have to take all of these like efforts in the teaching to try to convince you that like this is worth listening to. Like this is actually meeting some of the desires that you have. But like there you have it. Displaced and fragmented urbanites. Like I don't need to convince any of you here that that's how you feel. Loneliness, isolation is the air that we breathe in the city of Los Angeles. Now just fill in here your own personal experience. We could upload the, um, the, the works of, of Robert Putnam 20 years ago, Bowling Alone. Or we could bring up more recent works like Eric uh, Jacobson's uh, Three Pieces of Glass. What he talks about is we live within a culture that not just by our individual choices are we prone to individualism, which leads to isolation, which leads to loneliness. But we also have a culture that is structured around relational distance. The three pieces of glass being your smartphone, your television, 
and the windshield in your car. We have a society that's built around relational separation, that's built around being, when, even when I'm with you, I've gotten my phone, I'm distracted. My evenings, for most of human history, evenings were given to like sleep when the sun went down or time in front of the fire with other human beings, face-to-face contact, telling our stories. And now we just sit and watch other stories of, you know, fill in the blank of, of whatever that may be. And then similarly, the windshield, and what he means by that is the prevalence of cars. Like, and we live in a city that has been built around that vision of being able to drive all over the place, but we are separated from our own neighborhoods, separated because we spend most of our time in cars. The average right now is that the average American family takes nine trips in, like, in their car every single day. And so we're just more and more feeling that isolation, more and more displaced, more and more fragmented. But again, I really don't have to drive the point home too much. We all experience what, uh, what one author, her name's escaping me at the moment, uh, she wrote, the deep desire, the intricate longing of our hearts is the opposite of loneliness. But she defined it as something that she couldn't put a name on. What is the opposite of loneliness? I know that's what I want more than anything, and yet we can't grasp it. It's elusive. We can't even put our name on it. And the good news of the scriptures today is there is a name for the opposite of loneliness, and it's fellowship. It's koinonia. That's what you long for. And so what, what are we talking about when we talk about this koinonia? Romans chapter 12. Here's what we're going to do today. Um, first, when we talk about a portrait of this fellowship, I'm just, we're just going to do like a walking walkthrough. Romans chapter 12, just pointing out some things as we go. And then I've got three little like big steps for us to take, um, for us to consider stepping into this more. How's that? Is that okay with everyone? That sounds good. If you said no, I'm sorry, it's too late. You should have told me that earlier. <laughs> Romans chapter 12. You really can't do better than Romans chapter 12 on what it means, uh, the fellowship, the koinonia in the New Testament. So we'll just move through this, and I'm just going to point out some things as we go. So first, Romans chapter 12 begins, Therefore, brothers and sisters, stop, pause right here. Fellowship is first and foremost, what is the primary image and metaphor that we are meant to think of one another through the lens of? Brothers and sisters, family. Now, I don't know about your relationship with your brothers and sisters, but in the ancient world, the relationship between brothers and sisters was far superior than what we would hold it to. Right now, your brother, your sister is like, you call them daily, maybe. The odds are you don't live in the same city as them, and your level of responsibility or connection and intimacy with them is like, you know, somewhere down here. Most of it is what we think as we load onto as, as a spouse, is like romantic. That's where we think most of that will be found. The ancient world, the primary place that that was found was with a brother and sister. So Paul is inviting them into the deepest level of responsibility and connection and, and, and self-giving love. So first and foremost, the fellowship is, is, is family. We're meant to think of it in terms of family. It's a family that does what? In view of the mercies of God, or that is, as a response to the innumerable mercies of God given to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, I urge you to present your bodies, plural, as a singular living sacrifice. What is, we are a family who has been unified and brought together through the mercies of God, and now as a response, we bring all of our embodied, full, whole selves you know, all over varied as they may be, but we give them as one singular sacrifice. We are not all giving our lives individually as a living sacrifice. The grammar here is 
plural bodies, but a singular sacrifice. We come together, bond together, and it is our family life that is a living sacrifice to God. He continues, this loving sacrifice is called to be holy and pleasing to God, the one that we're giving it to. This is y'all's, plural, true worship. So the calling for us is, verse 2, not to be conformed to the individualism, the loneliness, and the isolation, and the tribalism of this age, but for us to have our minds renewed and transformed so that we, again, so that y'all, it's y'all, it's plural, so that y'all may be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So here we are just three verses, two verses in. Fellowship is a family relationship where we've been called out of living a particular way into a new way, and the goal of the church is for us to together discern and do the will of God. Like Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we are here for as a community is not religious services. It's not for you to have a you know, spiritual experience. It's for us to discern and do the will of God together. Verse three, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. First, what's the great prerequisite for a life of fellowship together? It's Humility. This is impossible with pride. This is impossible to build with a community that's constantly thinking of ourselves more highly than we should. Instead, think sensibly. Don't drag yourself down to the dumps, but just think rightly about yourself. Specifically, because God has distributed a measure of faith to all of us. Now, as we have many parts in one body, my fingers, my elbows, my chin, my toes, all the body parts, and all the parts don't have the same function. I don't hear with my toes. I don't taste with my ears. In the same way, we who are many are, are you ready for the second metaphor, picture of what the church is? One body in Christ. So we are a family, a bunch of plural little pieces that all make up one singular family, and we are one singular body made up of all these little plural pieces. And we are individually members of one another. How's that for your radical individualism? Your sense of self in the church is built up and predicated on my relationship to you and your relationship to me because we are family, we are body. He takes this language of the body and the toes that don't hear and the ears or the toes that don't hear and the ears that don't taste. He says, according to the grace given to us here within this church, Within each local church, we all have these different gifts. Some of us have prophecy. And so those that do, we need to use it with proportion to one's faith. Some of us serving, and so we need to use it in serving. Some of us in teaching, we need to use that in teaching or exhorting or, or encouraging other people. We need to encourage one another. Following Jesus is hard, and we need to be able to stand next to each other and say, we're going to do this together. If it's with giving, with generosity, there are some of you that you've got stock options at work, and so you are, gen you've get, you are gifted by God. With, I'm trying to make a joke. <laughs> you guys are just like, uh, uh, never mind. It's not a joke. Dude, yeah, that's that it. <laughs> you guys are taking so serious. So if we, have, if, we are, if we are gifted in such a way to be able to give, then we do that not sparagingly, not holding it, but with generosity. 
If we lead, we're meant to do that with diligence. If the gifting that God has given us is in showing mercy, doing acts of justice for others, then we need to do that with cheerfulness. One of the hardest things is sustained care for others and doing that not out of a place of bitterness, but cheerfulness. Paul calls us to do that with cheerfulness. So, so far, the church is a family and a body with unique and diverse giftings that are meant to come together so we may discern and do the will of God. Now he moves into, a, like, I think it's 25 little, like, do, 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 you know, machine gun blast little commands on what it means to build this fellowship. First, verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy, no two faced devotion to one another. No, it, but it a genuine, authentic love that when I am with you and you are with me, we're serving one another, we don't have to doubt that, that somehow you're doing this to manipulate me or that I'm doing this in some way to get something. We're doing it because we simply love one another. Following the way of Jesus as a community means that we, to do, together, detest evil. We, we have no time or place to, to entertain anything evil or, or bad within our community. But rather what we do is we want to cling, we want to hold on to what is good. Verse 10 says, love one another deeply, as here it is again, brothers and sisters. I love our CSB translation, but this is the one week because of what we've called this series that I, I wish we had a different translation. Because verse 10, most would say, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's this language of that, you, that the calling is not just to devote ourselves to God, but to devote ourselves to one another. Like an unwavering, stubborn commitment to each other. That's what he's talking about here. He says, take the lead in honoring one another. And other translations would put it as outdo one another in showing honor. There is almost a competitiveness within the church of honoring each other. This is exactly what Jeremy was just getting at, talking about like his region serving better than our region. What are we trying to do there? We're not trying to make your regions feel bad, whichever one you may be a part of. What we're, what we're trying to prompt is like an outdoing one another in showing honor. Because when we're trying to beat each other at being better at loving one another, like every Everybody wins. We're not simply looking to consume and receive honor and, and care or service from one another. We're looking to give in, not just in kind, but to go above and beyond what we've received from each other. Don't lack, verse 11, don't lack diligence in zeal. Don't, don't let that, that, that fire within you peter out, but together stoke the flame. One thing that, that I probably could have said a moment ago, all of these Greek weird moment, all the verbs here are plural. So this isn't you, Kent, don't lack diligence and zeal. Paul's not saying you, whoever in the church, sorry, Kent, you, you are one of the most zealous guys I know, so you're doing great. Um, but what he's saying is to the church, y'all don't let that fire go out among you. So y'all together stoke that zeal within one another. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Together, you guys rejoice in hope. Set your eyes fully on the hope of Jesus' resurrection and, and what that means for his return. As you go through affliction, he says, be patient together. Be persistent in prayer together. Share with the saints, share with one another in their needs, pursue hospitality. So crucial are these two right here, hospitality and caring for one another in their needs, that we're going to spend a whole week on each one in the coming weeks as we move through our series. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. He brings our attention not just into how we relate to one another, but how we as a community relate to those outside of the community. In the midst of cultural pressure in the city of Rome, or even for us in the ways that it takes form in L.A., we do not, we do not turn in kind. When persecution, whatever that looks like, whether the little ways or whatever, we do not turn in kind. We, we bless in the midst of that persecution. He returns back then to us as a community. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We are not a community that withholds our mourning as I don't want to be a downer, but neither are we the kind of community that withholds the great joys in our life because we don't want to pull, make other people feel like they have jealousy. Like there's, there's no place for that here. We are so committed to one another that we're not measuring each other and we're also not withholding and standing aloof from one another's pain. We're entering into the joy and allowing it to become our joy. We're entering into the suffering and the pain and the weeping and allowing it to become our own. This gets summarized in what he says in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Living with this, you know, you think of musical harmony that we're, our lives together are playing off of one another and moving through our lives together. He says, once again, do not be proud. Do you notice the one repeated command all the way through is that fellowship is impossible without humility. Don't be proud, but instead associate with the humble. That I'm not here within the community to associate myself with the who's who's. I'm here to associate myself and to actually have my eye out for the ones that often get overlooked outside of this room or outside of this community because this community is the place where those people are not just associated with, but loved and welcomed. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Once again, humility, humility, humility. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what's honorable in everyone's eyes. Once again, radical individualism has no place in building fellowship. My decision-making metric is, matrix is not simply... Uh, my all through my individual, my work, where I'm going to live, what I'm going to do, how well this will work for me. I'm, th I'm thinking through, my decisions are what is most seen as honorable by the, by the fellowship. Like this is so countercultural in an age of individualism. And this is, but this is not in, in most collectivist societies. This is what you do. What is most honorable based off everyone in my in-group? And I do that. I live within that. And so the crazy thing is not that Paul's writing this to a Roman culture. The crazy thing is he's saying that the church is meant to be the primary place that you give that. Verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Reconciliation is a two-way street. And so as much as it depends on you, let that road be open. And then we get a third metaphor for what the church is, a third image. We're not just family. We're not just a body. Verse 19, friends, friends, don't avenge yourselves. Once again, now he's turning back to the way that we respond to the church, or honestly, inside the church too. Don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head, which sounds like that's the opposite of like non-retaliation. It's, it's, a, it's a euphemism for waking someone up from their sleep. That actually by loving and serving and caring for those that would call themselves or treat themselves as our enemies, we actually wake them up to the love of God. And then finally, verse 21, don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. The fellowship of 
the church, the koinonia that we're called to, is a life as a family, it's life as a body, it's life as friends. And our goal is, as he says at the beginning in verse 2, that we discern and do the will of God together. And then at the end, our second goal in verse 21 is in so doing, we overcome evil with good. Now, I don't know what framework you have for what the local church is meant to be, what it's meant to provide, how it exists within the world. But Paul has just prepared for us a profound portrait that goes against what many of us have been raised to believe or how any, most of us would communicate it to our friends. We're inviting someone to come, you know, hey, so you're a part of Collective Church. Like, what are you, what are you guys all about? You know, you guys gather a couple times a week, sing the songs, you guys do the Bible study, right? It's like, no, man. We, as a response to the variable innumerable mercies of God in Christ Jesus devote ourselves to discerning the will of God for our lives and for our city by knitting a tight-knit community of love ever-growing as more and more come in and in so doing we conquer evil with good that's what our church does you're just like right like just consider how paltry most of our views of are the church it's like it's like just like a Jesus-flavored yoga studio where we're just like coming in and, we're like, and then we like leave. Like there is so much more to what Jesus wants to do through the local church than providing you with a spiritual experience. And, and even the community that you're meant to have here, this is what widely different than all the varying pockets of community, whether it's your surf club or your Facebook mom group or whatever it might be. What's so widely different than those is a mission that exists beyond just your entertainment and belonging. What's the mission of the surf group? We surf. Great. Mission accomplished. What's the, what's the like West Side Facebook mom group, which is the, one of the most harrowing places on the internet, in my opinion. Erin uh, lets me borrow her phone. She uses it to get free stuff. And it's, I mean, it is just an insight to how displaced and fragmented, in particular, young moms are in our city. And so we are chasing after some form of koinonia and fellowship. But the problem is, is that all of these just dead end on these like low level community where all we share in common is like we have kids in a city that makes it very difficult to do so. Or we like to go sit in cold water and wait for a little thing so we can do that once. <laughs> like that's, that's the very, <laughs> but that's, that's, the, that's, that's, the, that's all that is there behind that. What is the church meant to be? Not simply that, like, I like, I like reading the Bible. Like, there's far better places you can find. What is the church? Is a tight-knit community that has been bound together, not simply by shared interest, but the cosmic story that God has overcome our selfishness, sin, and individualism to bring us to himself through adoption. And the primary way that we experience that now and here is through one another. And the more that we deepen in that tight-knit fellowship, the more that we're able to discern who God is and what he wants for us. And it's the primary way that the evil in our city, the bad, gets overcome, not by throwing tweets and being mad about stuff, but giving a community that displays what good actually looks like. That is what we're called to. And I lost my place. Just kidding. Um, no, I'm not. Uh, so this is what we're called. Okay, this, yes, okay. So here's the thing now. <laughs> there's an idealism here 
that for some of us, like, you know, what's called an Enneagram One in here, we're just like, woo, yes, give me all the idealism. And the rest of us are going, we live in the real world. Paul, Paul does too. Notice that the call to idealism here is not simply Paul speaking in a vacuum. Paul calls the Roman church that they are brothers and sisters because he is 100% aware of the divisions happening within the church in Rome over ethnicity and over socioeconomic class. The Roman church, why he's writing this letter is because it's in danger of falling apart at the seams as Jew and Gentile refuse to be together and learn how to live with one another. The far more prevalent in the Corinthian church, but just as true in the Roman church, was this socioeconomic, where the church was fragmenting, reflecting the socioeconomic boundaries of the city. And so he writes, you guys are brothers and sisters to overcome the reality. He calls us to live in view of God's mercies because we so often forget it. He urges us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice because most often we control our bodies as a sacrifice unto ourselves and what we want. He calls us to be holy and pleasing because that's the opposite of what we most often are prone to. He says not to be conformed to this age because, let's face it, we have been conformed to this age and we need some help. And so we need a mind that's renewed. We need to discern what the will of God is because we have such a hard time naming it. He calls of us not to think more highly than we ought to because we do. He calls us to prioritize our life as one body because we're so prone to seeing ourselves fragmented and any spiritual gift that we have is for bolstering up my influence within the local church rather than serving another. He calls love to be without hypocrisy because so often it does. He calls us to detest evil because we entertain it, to cling to what's good because we set it down, to love one another deeply because our love is so often so shallow. He calls for us to take the lead in honoring one another because so often we're looking for someone else to take the lead. Not to lack diligence because we do, to serve the Lord because we don't, to rejoice in hope because we're dismayed, to be patient in affliction because we're impatient, to be persistent in prayer because we're lacking. All of Romans 12 is Paul saying, I'm painting the ideal in the midst of the fact that I know the church is a mess, which is great news because y'all are a mess. Not me, but you guys mostly are a mess. So here's what we can do is there's a hundred ways we can go here. Paul has given in Romans 12 an incredible idealistic picture of the church, but one that's built in the realism of who people really are. The fact is, is that even with the Spirit of God, when you're taking together recovering selfish sinners and you slam them all together into not just a room but a community, it's not going to be clean. It's going to be messy. And so as we wrap up, what I want to do is just look at three things that serve as bedrocks for building this kind of fellowship. Three things that serve as a bedrock for this kind of fellowship, because we, we could spend 17 weeks on this, um, but we're not. So, three things. Three things. That these are the entry points into what we need if we want to pursue this. The first, if we want to be devoted to the fellowship, is we need to be committed to community, which I know is redundant, but I'm, I'm sticking with it. We need to be committed to community. The simple reality is that in a city of both... Um, transience and sprawl, we need to be committed to a particular place and pace of life. In a city that's transient, in a city that's nothing but sprawl, in a city that everyone lives nothing but busy, we need, if we want to build this kind of community, to commit to a particular pace of life 
and place in life. So first is place. First is place. The saying goes that love is spelled T-I-M-E. Some of you, I'll give you guys, some of you guys in here, I can see a couple extra minutes to that one. <laughs> Doing the math. Or as they used to say uh, in, in during the revolution, you know, back during the 60s is revolution, I love this, revolution is seeing one another a whole lot. In a city like this, what we needed to do is first commit to, to being here for as long as God would have us. Now, I'm not under the illusion that all of us are going to be here for forever, but we all need to decide as long as I am here, I'm going to be fully here. And similarly with that is that when I begin to fold the, pull the tension away, that decision of relocating is one that I'm going to make very, very slowly, very, very prayerfully, and as we read, in a way in such that is honorable in the sight of all. It's a, it's a decision that I make in community. Now, we've had people leave that it's like in the middle of the night, job, like they just, they can't, family stuff. That, 100%, those things happen. I'm not here to shame that. All I'm simply saying is, is this kind of fellowship community, the depth of this takes place, not in weeks or even months, but years, and, and, and so often the difficulty is the more transient a city is, the more difficult it is to build those bonds of, of fellowship. And again, that part of that's part of our context is there's a level of transience here. But what that means is we, as long as we're here, we're super devoted as much as we can be. Similar to, to the kind of this commitment to place comes with our focus on the west side. Like, there's just simply, at the end of the day, you, you've got in a city of sprawl, you've got a name, what's going to be our backyard? What's going to be the living room? And at a certain level, when that grows to a certain level, you can't, you can have, sun, yeah, you can get here in 20 minutes on a Sunday, but you can't have what Anne Helen Peterson refers to as errand friends. That's what we're talking about when we talk about fellowship. Hey, I'm going to the grocery store. What are you, going, what are you doing? You want to go with me? You're, you're right there. You're along the way, and I just want to spend time with you. You, you can't, you really can't have that. The fellowship that you most long for and desire, you've got to just like rewind human history. We're not doing nostalgia here that we're like, get rid of cars and like the city of El That's not what I'm saying. But what you were made for is tight-knit relationships with a very tight geographical focus. And so in some ways, the west side is far bigger even than what, what we, we're just saying, man, that's the marker that we're going to have to make in order to try to steward this. So first is we have a commitment to place, both how long we're here, but also where we're at. But similarly, we also need to have a, a, a commitment to a particular pace of life, one that allows for this kind of thing to happen. Because again, fellowship isn't going to happen in a couple of like sprinkling over the course of your month events where you see one another. This will take place in the innumerable amount of little like connections and time together that happen not in the course of the month, but over the course of a week. And, and so the simple reality is, is that for so many of us... This is, this is incredible, and you want this more than anything, the opposite of loneliness, but the problem is, is you're just too busy for it. And, and I'm not saying that to shame. Some of that is just like what culture has put on you for your own expectations of work. But I'm just, I'm just saying, you can have, there's a decision that we have to make, and it's, the big, it's one of the biggest decisions you'll ever make, and it's the decision of autonomy or intimacy. It's the decision between freedom or fellowship. You can have, in a culture, that this, I read it this way this week, in a culture that loves choice, we are going to be a community that makes the, the choice to love. 
and the decision that loves to keep everything open or to say yes to everything, but then never have time for the most important things. What it means to pursue fellowship is to be committed to a pace of life that opens up my calendar for these kinds of little things that aren't as sexy, that aren't as cool. A lot of times it's me associating with who I would call as the, the lowly and probably them doing the same, but, but th- we, have to, we have to commit to this. So one way to say this that is like a dumb way that you'll remember it at least is when it comes to our place, we need to be slow to go. And when it comes to our pace, we need to be quick to know as an N-O. Quick to say no to things because we want to keep space open for the life of fellowship that comes in the myriad of little touch points. And we also need to be slow to go. That we take any decision like that, like I'm saying leaving a city over the course of year, year plus, really praying through having those conversations rather than in the jump. How are we doing? Okay. So the second commitment is to proxemics. Can you guys say proxemics? I, I probably could have named this something differently, but it's like, it's just fun to say. So proxemics um, is based in the work of an anthropologist by the name of Edward T. Hall. And what proxemics is all about is how relationships work. And here's the simple reality is you have a varying degrees of depth of relationship that you can have with a certain number of people. You can't be best friends with everyone. But in order to be a living, healthy human, you can't have everyone just be acquaintances that you see at the grocery store, right? So this is the breakdown. You have public relationships, which is like 70 plus. You think of like the city, the neighborhood around you. That moves into social. These are the people you know a little bit more. You recognize names, faces, and you know something of their story, 20 to 50 people. Then you have your personal relationships. This is a deeper knowing. We know stories. We know what we're wrestling through. We know what we're facing. We're meeting. We're, we're friends kind of space. And then finally is the intimate, which this is like these people know everything about me, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the like all of that. They know this, and they are with me. Now here, here's the reality. A commitment to proxemics, rather than just saying a commitment to fellowship, is because when it comes to the, our relationships in here, we need to adequately expect varying degrees of fellowship out of one another. And so the goal of the church is not that we're going to cram everyone into this room into your intimate space. That's not sustainable, and that's not even healthy. Like when you find that, that's like cult 101 talk. You, you, you is like, tell us everything always all the time, but you don't even know us. It's like, that's scary. And so what it means for us to be a healthy church is a commitment to this fellowship, but existing at varying degrees based off varying degrees of, of depth of relationship. Does this make sense? Hopefully. Okay. So here, here's the thing. On one level, this is just going to happen. But what we try to do at Collective is establish rhythms where we're not telling you who belongs in these. Once again, not a cult. But we're providing contexts and spaces where relationships can exist within those categories well. So you'll see this behind me. So the public space. Hi, welcome to the public space. Are we all brothers and sisters here in this room? 100%. Are we responsible? 100%. Are we family? Absolutely. Body? Yes. Friends? Yes. Absolutely. But a particular angle of that that then gets deepened as we move along. So then next we have like our social spaces. So this would be our monthly prayer nights, recurring classes, or book clubs. Like it's a space where we're going a little bit deeper than all just sitting in this room together and talking afterwards. Where we're going a little bit deeper, a little bit more into who we are in our story. 
Then there's the personal space, which would be the neighborhood dinners. Now, I know the number is like my neighborhood dinner is like twice that you know, number. The whole point is, though, even on a neighborhood dinner night or even on a neighborhood dinner relationship, you've probably got five to 12 that you're able to really know and experience. And so there's overlap for sure, but the whole point is that these aren't, we're not telling you who goes in these spaces. We're creating context where those kinds of relationships can happen. And then finally is the intimate, which would be our discipleship groups. Two to four people gathering every single week to stalk through how do we live out the scriptures together. And so a dedication to proxemics is like, we're just saying my commitment is, one, I'm not going to simply stay at social, and neither am I trying to force everyone into intimate, but I'm naming and holding certain people and expecting certain people to meet what it means to be brother and sister. Those are, there are people in the church that are just as much your brother and sister in Jesus Christ on the intimate side as on the public side, and yet your experience of that reality will be far deeper. Does that make sense? And so we just want, we want to make a space where we expect this out of one another. We want more than just social, but we're not going to say everybody belongs in intimate. And so for some of you that are new to the church, some of you that are going, man, I want to be integrated into the life of this community to see a movement of God, like renewal that's stewarded and spreading, just name where you are and just ask what would be the next step. So for some of you, this is like your first Sunday and you're like, I think I'm okay with all this. Well, just be, man, let's just commit to Sunday gatherings for a little while and just develop that, that public kind of relationship with one another. Some of you have been doing that for a while. Man, what would it look like for you to come to the next prayer night? As we have classes that come up for you to jump in and do that. Or, or maybe if you're bold enough to jump right into neighborhood dinners and to start meeting every other week to have dinner and serving together in a region of ministry. And then finally, to, to step into discipleship group where you're meeting with other people to talk through what it means to follow Jesus at like the deep level stuff. And all of this can be done through, as Jeremy said earlier, the QR code on the chair back in front of you. Super simple way to, to walk into this. But the whole point here with the commitment to place and pace and proxemics is first and foremost that, like as the saying goes, is that intimacy can only exist in the safety of commitment. Intimacy can only exist in the safety of commitment. That is true in your friendships. That's true in your relationships. This is a reason why, like in the midst of like all the sexual freedom that we have within our culture, it's not meeting the needs that we have and it's actually leaving us more hollow because intimacy can only exist in the safety of commitment, deep commitment. The more that we want the deep intimacy, the more commitment there must be to uphold it. And so part of what we're trying to do here is to steward a community with rhythms and a place and a pace of life that can actually steward and uphold the intimacy, the fellowship that we long for. So this is our dedication to commitment. Next is a commitment to vulnerability. Commitment to vulnerability. If we want to walk into the life of Romans 12 in this kind of fellowship, we're going to have to be vulnerable with one another. Romans 12 is impossible apart from shared vulnerability. How, how can I weep with you when you're weeping if I don't know that you're weeping? How can I rejoice with you when you're rejoicing if I don't know that you're rejoicing? How can I share in the needs of the saints if that hasn't been disclosed? How can you celebrate and encourage me and stir up the fire if you don't know how I'm doing? There's a level of vulnerability that's necessary for a life of fellowship. We have to know how one another are doing. We have to share the deep-seated stuff that is actually kind of terrifying to share 
Because apart from that, we'll never, that's, we just won't be able to do it. Now, again, I'm not saying that we're all going to do that in this space. We need to have relationships within the community where that is happening. And, and I just realized that is terrifying for most of you. In particular, for Gen Z in the room, uh, you guys have measured, um, congratulations, you guys have measured as the least trusting generation like since they've been doing polling. Um, you've also measured as having the highest desire for community and, and like relationships. And, and I think those two things go hand in hand. And so the reason why is when you just consider what most of Gen Z has been raised in, like for you guys, you guys have gone through 20 years now of like political upheaval. You guys have gone through economic upheaval. You guys have just like named the thing. And on top of that, continuing rise of like divorce and marriage and family of origin that has given you all the reasons in the world. And all of us have them. This isn't just a Gen Z problem. Every reason to distrust, every reason to withhold vulnerability every reason to, to put on a particular part of myself, what Chuck DeGroat calls vulnerability, F-A-U-X, fake vulnerability, to put that out there as the form of, of my relationship as opposed to true vulnerability because it's just not safe enough. C.S. Lewis writes in The Four Loves, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Again, he says, to love is to be vulnerable. And so the calling is, in the midst of vulnerability being the, some of the scariest thing that you might be called to into a life of fellowship, it is the stuff of it all. Apart from vulnerability, this isn't possible. And so the deep movement of trust is into what Brene Brown defines vulnerability as. Having the courage to show up and be seen when we have no control over the outcome. To show up with my full self, my weeping and my rejoicing, my failures and my sin and the ways that I've been sinned against. To bring all of that and to hold that before the, one another without any means of trying to control the outcome. Again, what Chuck DeGroat identifies as vulnerability, largely seen within narcissistic leaders, is a form of giving out like, oh, how I failed or, or what I did wrong, but always communicated in such a way that it's trying to get a particular outcome out of it. There's so many of us that the vulnerability that we give is, is always given, like our confession of sin is given in such a way that we can motivate and bring about an outcome where we now have control over the way that they're gonna respond to us in the midst of our failure. Vulnerability is I lay down the mess and I don't have any control over what gets done or said about me. That's true vulnerability, true confession, true repentance. It's just laying the mess and saying, I don't know, what do you guys think? And so this is the most terrifying thing in the world, but it's the only way forward. And so if you're wanting to take a step into this, I'll talk about why you should want to in a moment. But if you want to, here, here's just a simple reality. Is I, 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 am not gonna, I would not call all of you to join into that immediately. 
For those of us who are in our discipleship groups on a regular basis of meeting, this, I think, would be the main thing that I would encourage you to step into, to distinguish between what Justin Whitmel early identifies as the difference between vulnerability and sharing. So sharing is when you update someone on their, your life. Vulnerability is when you invite them into it. Sharing is it discipleship going, yeah, our marriage is kind of in a rough place right now if you guys can be praying for it. Vulnerability is our shouting woke up the kids last night and someone threw something. Sharing is I'm really having a really hard time at work and, and so I just need to, vulnerability is I'm taking pills to help myself sleep at night because I can't shut down. Sharing is like, I just pray for my relationship with God. Vulnerability is, I have never felt more abandoned by God, and I, don't, I can't keep going in this moment, and I'm almost about to hit the ripcord and get out of here. Do you see the difference between sharing and vulnerability? And so for our discipleship groups, my prayer is that your conversations would shift more and more to being like, you know, this might seem mean, but going, thank you for sharing. Would you care to be vulnerable? Some of you guys, the, the vibe and like the personality of your group, that's not, that's not maybe you have a different way. In my, in my group, I think that would, Tim, we would totally call for that. Um, and so I just want to invite us to step into that. More and more vulnerability, because again, this is the sweet stuff. Now, commitment and vulnerability are two terrifying things, and that's why the third piece is the one that holds it all together, and that is forgiveness. A community that's vulnerable without forgiveness is a terrifying place to be. A community that has commitment but is not forgiving will crush you. But a community with high commitment, deep vulnerability, and wide forgiveness is the kind of place that you will live and grow and you will be able to achieve. Like This is the kind of community that will take over the world and turn Rome upside down. And so what, what is the forgiveness that I'm talking about? First is, is the commitment of one. You're, you and I, are, I'm going to fail you. You are going to fail me. We are not going to do this perfectly. I will say things. I will drop the ball. You will do things. You will miss out. There will be even outward elements of sin that maybe might even be at me, but it's something that you've done that I'm going to need to enter into and, and walk with you through or, or something that I'm going to do that maybe I didn't even sin against you, but I sinned in some way that you're going to have to walk through it with me. Forgiveness is like the thing that brings all that together, that when you fault me, I'm forgiving of you and, and vice versa. And when you've sinned, that maybe I'm that part of what I'm doing when I enter into that relationship is I'm reminding you of the forgiveness of God over that. So we just become this community that in our commitment to one another, in our vulnerability, that the more vulnerable we are, the deeper our expression of forgiveness goes. And so this isn't like a carte blanche, like you know, blank check for sin where anybody who just wrongs each other, there's gossip, there's abuse, there's, there's like headstrong, like ongoing you know, sin where it's like, oh no, we're a community that's forgiving. No, 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 no. Forgiveness apart from community, or excuse me, forgiveness apart from commitment Forgiveness apart from vulnerability, that is some of the most destructive stuff you can bring into the church. Where we're all just forgiving one another, but there's no commitment that we've called to, and there's no genuine vulnerability for our hearts and lives to be changed. Forgiveness is the thing that carries this all through. So we have to be forgiving, not just of the ways that we fail one another, but we have to forgive one another of our expectations of one another. Henry Nowen writes, Forgiveness is the cement of community life. Forgiveness holds us together through the good and bad times, and it allows us to grow in mutual love. But what is there to forgive or to ask forgiveness for? 
as people who have hearts that long for perfect love, we have to forgive one another for not being able to receive or give that perfect love in our everyday lives. Our many needs constantly interfere with our desire to be there for the other unconditionally. But our love is always limited by spoken or unspoken conditions. What needs to be forgiven? We need to forgive one another for not being God. Part of what sustains a community is that we, allow, we see each other for who we really are. The, the, the perfect love that we are called into is a relationship with God. And we're meant to mirror that. But it is like a dim mirror broken and we're, we're not doing it perfectly. And so part of it is I need, to, I need to be okay with the fact that you're not going to reciprocate perfect love, that even forgiving myself, that I'm not gonna be able to give it perfectly. And we just allow ourselves to forgive one another, that the thing that binds us together is not our forgiveness of one another, but the mercies of God, as Romans 12 tells us. That is the thing that propels the life of fellowship. And so because of the mercies of God, then we're able to be merciful to one another. I don't need you to be God. I don't need you to be perfectly loving. I don't need you to always be there for me. You are allowed to fail because the thing that's holding my life together is not you, but the God who has been so merciful to me. And the more that we are disillusioned from that view of church, literally disillusioned, to lose that illusion that the church is going to be a stand-in perfectly for God, the more we're able to finally step into the fellowship that the New Testament invites us into. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, the sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. He continues, Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. We need a community that forgives one another and forgives one another of the expectations that you're going to be God for me. Because my, if I hold my ideals up here and the reality is the church is here, here or even here, it's never gonna be good enough and I will rip down the church trying to make everyone fit into that ideal. Living in response to the mercies of God means everybody in here is an absolute mess and the miracle is that there's any trajectory out of our selfishness and brokenness. And so we're not, the, the, I just, we, we put our head on a swivel. The thing that we're looking for, the thing that will make you live I, I just speak as a pastor because I get to see so much of it. The, one of the main things that keep me going is moving away from a critical spirit that's always highlighting and looking at what's wrong within the community or who's wrong in the community and shifting my attention to celebrate, lean into, and, and just go crazy over those moments where things are actually going like we think they should. Those are the miracles. Those are the things to put our attention on. And so the invitation, the equation of what it means to step into fellowship as we wrap up is simply this. Commitment plus vulnerability plus forgiveness equals fellowship. I've already detailed on how if you take out certain parts of the equation, it doesn't add up. You could play around with that this week. Of Take one out and what, what do you get at the end of the equation if you take out commitment? What do you get if you take out forgiveness? But this is, the, this is what it means to have fellowship. 
And this is what, once again, destroyer of the gods. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? It's this, a small group who wrapped themselves around this. David Brooks, finally, as we close. says, culture change happens when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. And, and the good news is, is that we're not starting from scratch. This portrait of fellowship, the small group of people, was a group in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And by God's spirit, we've been empowered to copy them. And that copy and paste has been happening over the past 2,000 years. And so our invitation today is to simply respond to the work that Jesus wants to do in our community and say, yes, Jesus, I want to devote myself to your family, to my brothers and sisters. Jesus, yes, I want to devote myself to be a contributing, active member of your body. Jesus, yes, I want to be a friend to this community like you have been a friend to me. Let's pray.